Welcome to the Respectful Divorce Podcast. If you're considering a divorce, it's important to know that you have options for how you divorce. On the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we explore those options and provide advice from divorce professionals. We also talk with divorce clients about what went right and what went wrong in their divorce. On today's edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast, Camille talks with Lisa Ziderman, Managing Partner at Miller Ziderman LLP, serving New York City, Westchester County, Long Island, and areas beyond. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for for coming on our podcast today. We love having different subjects and people with different skill sets and knowledge bases on the Respectful Divorce Podcast. And you are certainly bringing something that I have never interviewed anyone about today. And so I'm particularly excited about that. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to be talking to you. Tell us a little bit about where you are, what you do, and how you got there, if you would. Sure. So believe it or not, I started first my career in the fashion business. And in fact, I used to come to Texas all the time. I I was there every six weeks at the Dallas Mart and um, would fly in and had a great time and loved loved it in Texas. And then I decided as I was going through my own divorce that I wanted to make a career change. The only problem, of course, was that I didn't have a law degree or even a degree at the time. So I went back to college, got my college degree, and then went into law school at Fordham Law, got my law degree, and wanted to focus specifically on matrimonial and divorce law, which is what I did, and then worked for several different firms and opened my own firm in 2013, and so we're almost getting ready to celebrate our 10th anniversary, and we are about now 50 people, um, approximately 20-plus lawyers, and very excited to be both in Manhattan offices and in Westchester offices although we cover areas such as Long Island and as well as Rockland and Dutchess and Kings County. So we we really run run around quite a bit. Well, that's amazing. And congratulations to you on your anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. That's yeah, we're very amazing growth too. Yes, it, it, it has been lots of hard work and lots of learning, um, but we we have been growing ever since. Well, if you would tell the audience that's listening what the areas, often people, when we talk about matrimonial law, they don't know what all that includes. So would you explain for our audience what that means? Sure. So we cover anything from equitable distribution, child support, spousal support, orders of protection, family law overall, um, anything actually that is custody related. So access, legal custody, how do parents make decisions um, for their children? How does the process work in terms of when the parents don't actually agree on a decision? Going in, as I said, on in terms of orders of protection, if there are abusive situations such as verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, you know, this idea of coercive control, which is becoming unfortunately much more prevalent, I think, even since COVID. And so we really cover the gamut of all of those. And then, of course, we do prenups. Um, As people are getting married, they may at their when they're at their very best, they may want to decide how things will go in the future in the event of a divorce and postnuptial agreements as well. And and so we we deal with all of that. Well, I have 
become a big fan of doing premarital agreements is what the term is in Texas. And we really find it so helpful to both young people and not so young people. The young people, very often it will be one one side has more wealth than the other. And so we talk about things like, well, what if the spouse is going to stay home and give up their career? Do you not want to provide for them in the event something were to happen? And once we unpack that, people usually do. And we've even brought extended family members in that ultimately have supported that because they they want to be supportive and have a healthy marriage going forward. And then in the older people, um, often it's people that have built an estate with a previous spouse and they think it's only right for their children to be the primarily the beneficiaries of that. And so it's, it's two distinctive populations, but I have sometimes heard myself say, we're going to have these financial conversations, these difficult conversations on this side of the altar or the other side. And instead of your premarital counseling or in addition to your premarital counseling with clergy, this handles the other half of why people end up in our offices. And so I, I think you are uniquely qualified to handle those because of your certification as a certified financial litigator. So can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. So I am both a um, certified divorce financial analyst in addition to my law degree, and then I am a certified um, financial litigator. Um, to be a certified financial litigator, you need to attend the um, coursework for the American Academy of Certified Financial Litigators. And that is an in-depth course that gives you really the background for the finances of a matrimonial case. So for example, you know, we often find that many attorneys cannot understand the tax returns, the business tax returns, the even you know the the personal tax returns and the schedules that are associated with it. And it's so important that you be able to understand the finances of a divorce. You know, if you look at some of these schedules, you'll be able to see, for example, if someone is taking loans from their business, if someone is actually putting money into their business for the first time ever, what is going on in terms of expenses? Is somebody expensing out items such as cars or insurance or perhaps their mortgage payments? And we we often see that, it is important to understand how those expenses are being run through businesses because it may be that those businesses have more value um, when those expenses are no longer going to be run through those businesses. And so it's really important to understand the finances. Uh, this particular coursework will teach you how to determine child support, how to determine spousal support, how to perhaps equitably divide up retirement accounts. And we use, um, as I'm sure you do, qualified domestic relations orders but you need to be able to read all of that information. And of course, there are the more complicated issues such as the division of restricted stock units, which are more and more frequently being given to employees, both at the startup level and you know people who are working for large financial institutions or in the dot-com type of environment, such as a Facebook or a Google, where that is a, a large component of their salary. And then the idea of whether 
whether it is incentively based or not. So all of these are part of what you learn. And then you take a test and the test actually is, is a difficult test. And if you pass the test, you get the certification. And so I, I do think it's important for matrimonial attorneys to be able to do that. And you talked about another another certification that you've got, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. Can you explain the difference in those and why it's important to have both? Yeah, so a, a Certified Divorce Financial Analyst is able to guide their clients as to perhaps more of which assets to be looking at um, in terms of the division. So, you know, you and I both know that there can be two IRAs, except one may be a Roth IRA and one may be a non-Roth IRA, right? And one has tax consequences and one has prepaid taxes. Well, if you don't really understand that information, then you might just think we're going to split up all the IRAs and that would actually be doing a disservice to your client. Another example is whether somebody should really be guided to take the marital residence as part of their package. Perhaps the marital residence, while it has a lot of personal value to you psychologically. Um, perhaps it's a place that you've raised your children and you feel like you really want to be there and continue to be there. It may not be the best asset to actually take. It may be that the market's too high right now, or maybe there's going to be a capital gains tax that you'll be responsible for. Or you might think, well, maybe I'll keep it for two years or three, but then you're going to get stuck usually paying the broker's fee entirely. And so those are the kinds of things that a certified divorce financial analyst will look at as to how to divide up the property. So all of these are just helpful tools in my arsenal that I utilize every day as part of being a litigator. And it just makes me, I think, a little bit more knowledgeable um, in terms of being able to guide our clients. You feel like it gives you an edge over some of the other attorneys that do not have that background and experience and training? Sure. I think it gives you an edge. I mean, I think that the, that knowledge is power. I always say to my people, be knowledgeable, be prepared when you walk into court. All of those things are really important. And they obviously also build confidence by, you know, from your clients. If you understand these things as you're going through a deposition or you understand these things that you're trying to put together a settlement proposal, for example, it's really important. And I think your client expects that and they should expect that. They should expect to have knowledgeable, prepared attorneys. And if you have the lesser educated or lesser uh, savvy client about the finances, I would think that your knowledge and experience in those certifications give you a particular helpful edge for them because they may feel disadvantaged if their lawyer doesn't know a lot of that. I think any any client is disadvantaged if their lawyer is not knowledgeable about um, the finances, about their custodial rights, about child support, uh, you know, and the law in general. I, I think it's really important that attorneys understand the law in general and can guide their clients appropriately. And it's sad sometimes to see that that's not always the case. One of the things that that you have on your website is is cryptocurrency. And that's kind of a hot topic right now. So I wondered if you'd educate all of us a little bit on that. So I think the most important thing about cryptocurrency to understand is what you don't understand, right? Because cryptocurrency is very, very complex. And we often bring in forensic accountants to understand the different um, types of cryptocurrency and to make sure that we're asking the right questions in a deposition. You know, we have found millions of dollars for our clients in cryptocurrency because 
as you know, um, likely, it's not so easy to find it sometimes. And so um, making sure that you are sending the subpoenas out, making sure that you are asking for the right documents, that is, it's important not to just have the knowledge, but to know when you don't have the knowledge and to know when you need to actually ask for a forensic accountant to be working together with you, which is what we do when it comes to cryptocurrency. And that's, that leads me to another question, just to manage client expectations. Um, they might come to you and think that you are instead of a, an accountant or a CPA that would aid in that that you've described. Why would you need an accountant when you've got these certifications yourself? Because the accountant is really the person who has such a huge knowledge base, right? These are helpful tools that I have, but I'm not an accountant. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax attorney. I, I, I really do utilize an entire team of people when I'm working with, with our, our clients. So we usually, if there's a business valuation or an income stream analysis that needs to be conducted, or if the accounts are, um, you know, sometimes you get just somebody who has so many different accounts and, or has conducted so many transfers throughout the, the time period, you need somebody who can look at that with very specific eyes. And that is not an attorney necessarily. We can recognize the issues. That's what I think is so important is to recognize that there's an issue so that you can get on the phone with the forensic accountant and say, hey, I just saw this, or I think that we need to delve into this. That really is an attorney's job. Spot the issues. It's like law school, right? Spot the issues and then get the team that you need in place to actually deal with the issues. And so we do not substitute ourselves for either tax attorneys or forensic accountants. A client should expect if they have issues such as what you have described, that they're going to need both at least and maybe even more people on the team. Absolutely. A hundred percent. The name of this podcast is a respectful divorce and you are a litigator. And sometimes those two don't really seem like they would be similar. But you have some suggestions about ways that people can conduct themselves respectfully, even in the context of a divorce. Can you share with our audience some suggestions about that? Absolutely. First of all, I have to tell you, I love the name of your podcast. <laughs> I, I think it's it's such a, an important thing to be respectful of either your co-parent or your spouse as you're proceeding through a divorce. And I think that people sometimes forget that. You know, certainly if you have children and you're going to be spending the years ahead of you at um, different family events, such as weddings and christenings and um, bat mitzvahs and all sorts of, of events that as, as you proceed through life, um, that you can't anticipate as you're going through that divorce, it's so important to be respectful. And there's ways to do that. And there's ways not to do that, right? So for example, I always tell people, maintain the status quo as you're going through the divorce. Don't be the person who's going to cut off all the support. That's not respectful to your spouse. You even tell this to your clients. Absolutely. 
I, I, we are not the people who say, go and cut off all the support. That just is not something that is advisable because all that's going to do is to actually cause more legal fees, more motion practice, more litigation. It, it's not advisable. Now, look, if someone is all of a sudden going on a spending spree, then yes, there have to be limitations that are put on. But if everybody would conduct themselves respectfully, then you don't need to do that. You can all operate in the same status quo that you were operating before. So it's important. I, I would say the issue of support, the issue of verbal or physical abuse. It's, you know, we see it so many times where we have to, unfortunately, you go into court and get orders of protection because somebody is so vile, um, you know, screaming and yelling and, and cursing in front of, of the children. How could, and, and you can hear sometimes, you know, people tape these things sometimes and they come in and they may even be proud how well they conducted themselves when they're, you're listening to these tapes. And I'm saying to myself, oh my goodness, like, did you not hear the child in the background saying, stop, stop? Right. So it's so important not not to do this at all, certainly, and not to do this in front of your child. And one other kind of abuse that you didn't list, but that I know you deal with because we talked about it earlier is coerciveness. Yes. Would you talk about that? Because I think even maybe more than physical or verbal abuse, because this has such a continuum of it can be a little bit or it can be a lot of coercive financial abuse or coerciveness in the finances. So could you explain that for our audience and help them know what we're talking about when we talk about that? Because there's no bruises with that, so to speak. There are no bruises. And I, I will say that this is an area that I am particularly passionate about. Um, you know, one of the things that I do is I am VP of a board called Savvy Ladies, which you may have heard of, which actually helps women as they um, proceed through life, including their divorces sometimes, with a free helpline where they can call in and be connected with a financial professional to answer their financial questions one-on-one. -on -one. It's all free. Is that just in New York or is it across the country? That is nationwide. Absolutely nationwide. Savvy ladies. Savvy ladies, yes. And it is it is an incredible organization. And I got involved because I would see so many women who would come to me who really had no information as to their accounts, couldn't get into their accounts um, because they, they weren't put on, their names aren't on the accounts. The um, spouse would have all of the control and they would have none. And they would literally be asking for an allowance as if they were treated like a child. And sometimes they would get the allowance and sometimes they would not get the allowance. And sometimes they could get to go to the grocery store. And sometimes, frankly, they could not. And sometimes they could get the childcare person. But if you don't don't have the money, you can't even hire the childcare person so you could go to work. Mm -hmm. And that is coercive control. That is financial abuse. And it is, it is, I, I think one of the um, most abusive ways to deal with somebody is to control their money or their ability to, um, to access the funds. And it happens to people who have very little money. And frankly, it happens to people who have millions of dollars. Okay. They don't see the tax returns. Their signature is sometimes put on the tax returns and they haven't reviewed them or signed the tax returns. They um, are told just sign here years ago before it was just e-filed and now it's just e-filed, right? Um, so there, there is so many 
ways that um, people are actually controlled through the use of money. And it, it it is unfortunate. You know, there was a show very recently, I think it was on Netflix called Made. I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to watch it, but it was a woman who, um, it was a true story about a woman who actually was married, had one child and her agony of getting out of this marriage because along with the financial abuse came the physical abuse, came the verbal abuse. And they all go together because you don't have any power to get out when you are controlled financially, when you don't have the access to even get to work. And so I I think it is one of the worst forms of abuse that there is. I think it's insidious too, Lisa. Um, And I've seen it with both sides. It's not a gender specific abuse. Um, But I do think, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, somewhere, whether it's in our childhood and fairy tales or what, people have this happily ever after mentality. And it seems particularly true with young women, despite my age, which is 64, telling these girls, never relinquish all your power because that's not helpful. Even if your husband became disabled or died, you would be ill-equipped to manage the family finances. What do you say to people to never, it's not a power struggle, but to never let themselves become the powerless, uneducated, if you will, or ignorant about their family finances in a situation where they're living together or married, whether whichever gender it is. So, you know, I talk about this issue a lot um, in both my capacity as a matrimonial attorney and um, as, you know, when I speak about savvy ladies. And what I, I do tell people is that they need to maintain a dialogue, right? And they need to maintain a dialogue with their spouse. My husband and I, we we have a ongoing dialogue. You know, some people have, I guess, their their date night when they actually discuss these things, or maybe they meet up once a month or, the, or once a year or whatever it is. Ours is an ongoing dialogue, and it's part of our conversation, and we have it all the time. You know, what's going on with this investment or what's happening with that investment? Because you really are in business together. It's a business meeting. Yes, it's a financial partnership, right? So um, a few months ago, the Wall Street Journal actually, um, I I was very blessed. I had a Wall Street Journal article on myself and my husband um, about our financial partnership and how we deal together um, in our lives. And, you know, I always say I have something called the mailbox rule. So one thing is that I tell um, people they should always look at the mail. Look at what is coming through, because very often part of financial abuse is that the mail isn't coming to the house. The bills are no longer coming to the house. The credit cards, like you don't see any of that. All of a sudden, it's going to somebody's office. And so it's good to to look at it. Now, I'm not home, right? I'm in my office now, so I'm not seeing the mail today. But on Saturday, when we go out for breakfast, we'll you know drive down our driveway, and I will go to the mailbox, and I'll open all the mail that comes in. And it's a random day like any other, and there'll be an Amex, or there'll be you know, uh, whatever the bank is, and there'll be all of these statements. And I will just open them, 
as we're driving and my husband will say anything interesting. And usually it's not anything interesting. <laughs> and, but the point is, it's good to always keep an eye on, on things to understand what's going on. You can't just be passive in your relationship about your finances. And what's interesting is that I often see women who are professionals who actually are handing over their entire paycheck and they don't get to actually have anything but an allowance. Well, that's, uh, that's just unspeakable to me it's right? very dangerous it's like riding without a seatbelt. it is and it is. and one of the and, and again i've seen this i've seen this with one side having more power than the other but often it's in the context of well i'm just going to take care of you let me just take care of you so i guess some people they really genuinely want to take care of the other person but it's rather naive and certainly not savvy to surrender all your knowledge because it can put you in such a perilous position if they become disabled. It could be a brain injury. They they aren't even going to, to, to participate going forward because they are no longer able to, and you would be suffering from the grief of that and be ill-equipped to even pay the bills for the next month. A hundred percent correct. I mean, it is, it, it, it's just also, it's not healthy. It's not a healthy way to, um, to have your marriage or to have your relationship. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I, I meet people who, as they're going through their divorce, I'll say to them, well, have you started to go through, you know, the bills? Have you started to look no, I haven't. And and I'm thinking, but now we're going through a divorce. Like, why wouldn't you look at the information? And we're getting discovery. You need to look at the information and understand it. Well, they're so used to, unfortunately, not having done that, that they don't even know how to get themselves started. And those women, I think, and men should have some sort of a financial advisor that they could turn to, that they could work with, because they really need to understand this. And it's not just, you know, to your point, it is not one gender or the other. It is a mindset. And when you say a financial advisor, I am guessing that you're speaking of a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And can you explain what the difference is between a fiduciary and other wealth management professionals? Well, look, I think that um, we deal with people who are... Um, I usually don't recommend someone who is just working on a commission type of structure. Okay. So it's very important that they be somebody a, that you trust and that you met, that they can have the knowledge to put you into different investments, to have a wealth of different investments and to diversify you. And that I think is important for, for you. Um, and for most people, look, I believe in diversification because I think that that's a better way to organize your finances. But the main issue is to find somebody who you can trust and who will give you the information and who you could sit with and who you can plan out for your retirement. And that that is the main main thing to be doing right now. And so let's talk a minute about a litmus test, because some of these folks could be somewhat vulnerable and even gullible because they may not have that uh, thermometer built into them about who it's safe to trust 
and they might get taken by somebody. So when people are looking for a financial advisor to either help them plan their future or to become educated on what their finances are, how would you tell them to discern when they interview people who would be the best choice for them for that job? It's a great question. Um, I think that, first of all, referrals, you know, uh, people that they trust um, that have used somebody over time is always a good, good source. Um, You know, we have have certainly people we've had experience with that have done a good job for our clients. Um, But you should you should really look at several different people and see who you feel comfortable with. But definitely a referral source and then having several meetings with somebody, understanding who you're going to be working with through the office. Maybe it's going to be somebody who handled your family finances for a long time. That's another good source, perhaps. I mean, look, you need to be careful, right? It's your money um, and you need to watch it. And you you need to make your the right choice. I don't think there's any one um, particular way to do that, except to as you would pick a doctor or as you would pick um, you know any other professional in your life. You need to do your research. You don't just pick somebody out of the internet or the old yellow pages. So to no, speak. that would be bad. That would be a bad idea. And I would think that just an experience that I have with clients, if they use us as the attorneys, as their counselor on the emotional questions or their finance, try to turn us into their financial advisor, we're much more expensive than the professionals that are more qualified to do that particular job. Would you agree with that? Uh, Absolutely. We don't, we're, we're not therapists. Um, You know, I just said to somebody yesterday that while I'm empathetic, that isn't it's not really my job to be a therapist. Um, My job is to make sure that I do the best job for you. And I have a list of therapists that we can refer you to. um, And then you can choose a therapist or obviously get your own referral source for therapists. But I we're not therapists and we're not financial advisors. We're not tax attorneys. We're not forensic accountants. We are lawyers. And some of those financial advisors can be almost like financial therapists, I understand, from my feedback I get from clients. Yes. Uh, uh, Having to educate and hold their hands through it. Yes, and that's true. Although, again, I don't necessarily know that that is the, the best use of therapy and a financial advisor, right? I mean, sometimes you have to just have somebody who's going to give the tough love, right? You can't buy that, or you can't go there, or you can't do this. This is what you can afford to do. Maybe you don't get to keep the house in the divorce because it's just not financially smart. So Lisa, in addition to uh, informal exchange of information, there's, there's either formal discovery and financial exchange through inventories. Can you explain a little bit about what that looks like for our listening audience? Absolutely. So the first thing that we usually start with is an exchange of statements of net worth where they are sworn to. They have a list of expenses um, that are an average of your monthly expenses, usually for the prior year, and then assets and liabilities, as well as any contingent assets. So maybe you know that there's an inheritance out there. Maybe somebody has already passed and the inheritance is waiting to come, or um, as we discussed, restrictive stock units, which may not have vested and are contingent on you continuing to work, et cetera. But all of that should be in your statement of net worth. 
And that, that statement of net worth is then exchanged. After that, we usually put out what are called um, discovery notices. So there is a discovery notice that we serve as well as an EBT notice, which is an examination um, before trial. It is no, commonly known as a deposition notice. And it's where we get to ask questions about the documents or about the missing documents or other things that we don't necessarily understand. So we may be looking at certain um, you know, ta business tax returns and we may not understand certain items or we may be questioning um, the person. You know, There's an old rule, which is you never want to get to a trial and, and be asking a question that you don't know the answer to. So what's the way to prevent that? You make sure that you take your deposition and you ask the question because then you know what the answer is going to be when you ask it later. And so I, I am a big believer in depositions as my clients know, because I think it's important to understand the information and to get it all on the record. Because if by some chance you're that one case that goes to trial, you want to make sure you have that deposition done. So we do discovery um, depositions. Then we might also have follow-up discovery that we need, particularly if there's business assets that we are valuing. Um, we might need general ledgers. Uh, we may need to, to actually depose non-parties, people who might work for a particular business or might be somehow financially related and who might have information that one of the parties doesn't have. And so we we actually run the gamut. We'll do the deposition notices. We'll do the deficiency notices. And hopefully everybody is cooperative because here's the thing. If you're not cooperative, the legal bills are going to escalate. It's really that simple because that 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 lack of cooperation is what causes us to have to subpoena. That lack of cooperation is what starts to raise, you know, our antenna saying, hmm, why is it that they're not cooperating? Why are they not providing the information? What is it that they are not disclosing? And so you don't want that. I always say to my clients, give all the discovery. There's nothing to hide. This is open and full discovery. That's what it's supposed to be. And whatever it is, it is. You know, you you can try to um, massage your story, but the fact is you still need to give your discovery. And it's, it's very important that people have full disclosure so that they can actually make appropriate settlement proposals and get to a resolution. And so that's what discovery looks like. We inventory it. We um, go through it. You know, sometimes I, I will say attorneys are sometimes known for wanting the discovery, but then they don't look at the discovery. Looking at the discovery is where the wealth of information is. And it's really, it almost always turns out that there's something great in that discovery. You just have to look at it. You just have to look at it. In your jurisdiction, are you mandated to go to mediation prior to trial? No, we are not. We um, we have a choice, of course. And sometimes when we get very close and we've resolved a lot of different issues, we might decide that we want to use a mediator to resolve to help resolve some of the other issues, but it is not mandated. What percent of your cases, just guesstimate, of course, do you think actually go to trial? I would say it's probably um, 5% of the cases. I, I think that's probably about right. You know, those cases always seem to take so much time. So you feel like it's much more than it really is. Um, but most of the cases resolve. Some of the cases resolve right before trial. Some resolve during a trial. Um, you know, I think it's rare that we finish a trial from start to finish. And so if you 
don't have to go to mediation, you don't go to mediation and you don't go to trial, what does the settlement process look like in a typical case? So in a typical case, what happens is after we get all the information, we put together actually a settlement proposal. Dear so-and-so following is our settlement proposal. And then we have, you know, how we see equitable distribution should be divided, how we see maintenance or spousal support, child support, legal fees, expert fees, um, and and then, you know, a custody proposal, et cetera. And we will send that to the other side and then get some sort of response and that opens the door for discussions. And then we may actually narrow in on the issues and start to peel the onion. You know, today I, I was on the phone with one of my other partners and we were talking about putting together a proposal and how that's going to look. We were also answering another proposal that had come in. And although we don't agree on everything, I said, great, let's settle the things that we do agree upon and start to narrow the issues. And do you meet in person, like on TV, there's always a fancy New York, a Manhattan conference room that's looking out over the city. Is that how it really happens? So it does really happen that way a lot of the time. Sometimes we don't meet at all. We just literally do it by phone and and letter. But there are definitely times when we, we do meet in person and we have those types of discussions. There's also times when we start a deposition and in the middle of the deposition, we may settle the case as well. And we may say, you know what? We have the information. This is how we see it. Let's see if we can take an hour out of the deposition and see if we can settle the case. So sometimes depositions are good ways to actually get everybody in a room and, and start to think about how to resolve the case. So back to the name of this podcast, what you're saying then is that even if you're litigating, you can handle yourselves honorably and respectfully. Is is that what you're telling me? Absolutely. Because again, on TV and in the movies, it doesn't look like that. It looks like it's just fist to cuff fighting all the way. But that's not the world we really live in, is it? Look, sometimes it is, right? Sometimes you're going to get somebody who's very abusive in the process and it's going to be a nasty process. There's no question about it. And you need to make sure that you are ready for that. But you don't need to be the aggressor. You don't need to be the first one out of the gate being aggressive. You know, I I always say, you take the high road at the beginning, okay? If somebody is going to push, then yes, they're going to get pushed back. But you don't have to be the one to push first, okay? That's a different philosophy, isn't it? Some attorneys start out really the fire breather and that's their philosophy and then they can pull back whereas you start out where you are describing and you can always turn the heat up exactly it's exactly it right cost as much if you're able to settle it without the fire breathing at the beginning that really escalates and ramps everything up Absolutely. That's 100 percent true. And, you know, look, people think of us as an aggressive firm. I think uh, certainly that I'm assertive, but I am assertive. But, you know, what they don't realize is that I am reacting um, a lot of times to to, you know, all of a sudden the status quo has changed. My client's support is cut off or all of the money is moved out of the accounts. It happened today that that somebody moved monies out of the accounts. We right away have to write a letter and we have to threaten to go into court. Now, they'll say, why did that all happen? Well, that happened because you moved the, the money, right? Yeah. You shouldn't have moved the money in the first instance. There was no purpose in moving the money. So I, I think that people need to 
think logically, okay, they're not going to to prevail because they've cut somebody's support off. They're not going to prevail because they've been abusive. That is unlikely to happen. Certainly, you know, if we're going to be the attorneys, it's unlikely to happen because that's not that it's just it's that same boring um, way of going about it. Instead, if everybody would just come to the table, bring all your documents, make sure that they're organized because that will keep your the fees down. Make sure that you actually are cooperating. I shouldn't have to go into court for motions to compel the discovery. That's ridiculous. Respectful divorce does not necessarily mean passive. That's correct. That is 100% correct. You can absolutely advocate. You can absolutely, um, you know, maintain your position, but you should, okay, cooperate. And and you don't need to be abusive during the process. There's no reason for it. You can be civil. And if everybody is civil and honorable, the outcome will be better for all involved, I expect. Yes, I I agree with that. And that's why I love the name of your podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa, for spending part of your afternoon with us on the Respectful Divorce Podcast. We really appreciate your time and all your wealth of knowledge. And I think your clients are very lucky to have you to help them. So thank Thank you you for spending that with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure to be discussing this. Thanks. And remember, collaborative divorce is a better way to untie the knot.